0: Welcome to the 51st episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Duesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about dividing and conquering, moving from a multi-tenant stack to many smaller single-tenant stacks. This isn't sharding in the database sense of the word. This isn't making a, an incoming data stream segmented across servers or segmented across tables or, or indexes or however you want to do it and having a front-end proxy reassemble the data when when queried. This is taking a large, previously monolithic service, be it metrics or logging or file services or whatever it is, and breaking it out from being a multi-tenant environment to being lots of smaller single tenant environments. So I love the term
1: divide and conquer. And by love, I mean, I love to hate it. Uh, I think it's a term that's, very much lost its meaning over the literal centuries that we've been using it. Um, In my mind, this references the uh, Roman era and really the centuries prior to the Roman era, where the divide and conquer tactic was about causing your enemy's army to divide and turn against themselves rather than being able to unify and attack you with full force. Most cases, uh, when folks talk about divide and conquer today, they're usually talking about how do we divide the team to uh, at- attack in multiple prongs a specific problem or a specific set of tasks. And that's always something that kind of rubs me. Divide and conquer is also used a lot for uh, describing computer algorithms um, such as multi-branched recursion algorithms. If folks are familiar with uh, sort uh, or Quicksort algorithms... Um, that's definitely classified as a divide-and-conquer uh, computer
0: algorithm. One of the places that this has come up for for me is taking something that has previously been very monolithic and very centralized. Um, in the old days when I did university work, file services were done this way traditionally, or mail services, and now it's things like monitoring and aggregation stacks and logging analysis things where you have all the outputs from all the various teams and services or all the inputs for all the people who are trying to do things going into one set of servers. So you would have a dozen mail servers or you would have a whole bunch of file servers or you would have your Elk stack centrally or you'd have Graphite run centrally. And all of the data from all of the people went into the same system. And then you had application logic where you had pattern matching or recording rules that said, this is how and where individual teams are stored. And so if you need your data back out, this is how you go ask for it. And this is, this is a good way for many things to operate at small to medium and even kind of large scale. But there comes a point at which you have to start asking the question of, is this actually an architecture that we want to keep on expanding? Um, the Elk stack that I helped to run has gotten to be ridiculously enormous. And we're looking at, at taking this, this approach, and we haven't decided if we're doing it exactly yet, but we're looking at this approach to say, instead of running one very large logging stack that services all the users, we will build lots of smaller Elk stacks, very carefully construct them, and then federate search across them so each team has their own logging platform. If one team's logging platform goes down, it doesn't affect everybody else's. You can still look at the data that's important to you.
1: So I think most of us that are of a certain age in this field have definitely spent some time building centralized services. I remember doing many things in that model of services, especially when I was working in real data centers with actual physical hardware that I racked and stacked myself. And you can make that architecture scale to an incredible degree, really, and for centralized services like uh, email, perhaps at my time at the university, services for Linux machines or other common computing authorization, authentication, those scale out as centralized services really quite powerfully. And it's it's been with the advent of uh, the Google Cloud Platform and AWS that have really started to tickle me about how how you give teams what they need to function in sort of a more isolated area, although that's probably a horrible way to describe such. But I'm definitely from the centralized services uh, sort of arena, and getting myself to sort of think in the I uh, think in the ways of infrastructure as code. If a team needs a specific service, they should just be able to spin it up for themselves. Is is a new paradigm shift for me. And it turns out there's definitely some scaling and management advantages there, but it's not the silver bullet that they tell you about in school.
0: Yeah, a, a lot of this was made possible really by the advent of the cloud and even more so, in my opinion, the the service-oriented architecture or the microservice model of doing things where you say we're moving the complexity out of the application, and more into the interconnect between things. And we're breaking down from large monolithic instances into smaller and more specifically tasked things. And yeah, there's there's a bunch of benefits to this, and there's a bunch of cons to this, and you have to weigh for each service and each team and each organization and everybody else if this is actually a good thing to do because it adds a lot of changes, and some of these changes will be perceived as user-hostile. So you have to be careful as you think these through, how you want to handle it, what kind of model, what, like, how are you going to support this? What What is your support model moving forward for a smaller set of targeted single tenant instances? Um, I think I something s- important
1: to really emphasize here is, is folks should be careful about shifting their patterns from a centralized-based service to a distributed-based service. And really think out, are the benefits you're going to get out of that move really actually going to work for for the organization? Uh, there are definite pros and cons. And don't do it just because all your f- cool friends are doing it. Uh, that's not a reason to make this kind of change if you don't have to.
0: Yeah, I kind of see that there's three models for for managing this. And there's the, the first one where you have a script or utility or a self-service web page where somebody goes and they click a button and it says, okay, here is a copy of the file server or here is a mail server, here is a web server, here is a logging stack or here's whatever it is you need and it's yours and there are some knobs you can turn but if you break them, just make yourself another one. We're not going to support you and that is an interesting way to approach the problem and it works for some services, notably things like load balancers or things that don't require a lot of configuration and don't have a lot of state because it's relatively painless to reset them and say, okay, I just, I'll just get another one out, and it's, it's not that important. And you think of them as kind of a rental or a, a short-term kind of operation anyway. Infrastructure is code. You create it, you abuse it, you destroy it, and you start over again. Yeah. The, the second model that I see is you have the subject matter experts that used to run the thing. They're still running them. But they're they're doing the transition primarily because they're trying to move either the costing model or the support model or the, the noisy neighbor problem out to the customer. They're trying to say, okay, instead of having one massive database that everybody's pounding on, and when one person runs a bad query, takes a database for everybody, we're going to run a lot of little databases. And so we're still going to help you support them, but they're, it's on the groups to kind of pay attention to resource limits and understand those those pieces of it. And then the third model is where you're not shifting responsibility at all. You're just breaking it into smaller pieces. So you're basically only really trying to solve for the noisy neighbor problem. So you're making all of the pieces move out to the edges. So when one blows up, it doesn't take out the next, the next one, the one next to it. But this has its own little scaling nightmare of its of because you're now supporting dozens of little instances of the same thing, and you have to have built the service in a way. That supports this and lets you operate on all of them at once, all of them easily, and make sure the changes as you propagate them through actually take effect. And you have monitoring on all of them and all kinds of other pieces of it. So it's it's good for the noisy neighbor thing, but it's hard for the team that's trying to operate it.
1: And I think one of the support models that uh, folks are looking at is the sort of one of the sort of founding principles of a of an SOA, a microservice type environment where you've got your API and I've got my API and I'll agree to version my API and you agree to hold your API standard and we can talk to each other. And those contracts are, whether they're written or social, um, work in a lot of cases, but they don't work in all cases. And it's important to realize that that technique is, has its strengths and its weaknesses and things it works well in and things that it doesn't work well in. If you need to uh, provide tools or some sort of convenience wrapper uh, or some method for users to consume your service other than something that's layers on top of the APIs, that support model starts to break down. But for a lot of things that are just pure REST-based, uh, that model really excels
0: yeah you you could look at a metrics pipeline or a logging pipeline and say the the user endpoint for this is at this address and it's on this port and here's the authentication pieces and the security pieces for it and we will accept up to x1000 units per second or whatever and that's all there is there's no worrying about Hey, is the agent installed and configured correctly? Is are these other pieces going on? Are we parsing things appropriately? It's oh, you can send us you can send us up to this particular limit, and then we cut you off. Well, what happens when a team actually needs to be higher than that? What happens when a team doesn't realize that they're bursting past that at two o'clock in the morning because they don't have either monitoring or other pieces set up for it? How do you handle these these edge cases? It it becomes in some senses, very user hostile, especially if you were in a model where you had a monolithic instance where people could send anything they wanted to, and now they are experiencing a massive change in how the service works. They don't see the benefit to themselves directly, and every time that they find something that's different that's hurting them, it's told they're told that it's their fault for violating the contract.
1: I think that perhaps a more simple way to look at some of these is is based on my experience is looking at graphite and statsd versus a more modern uh, prometheus stack and which i think is is relatively simpler to reason about than some of of brendan's crazy elk um with graphite and statsd a lot of places set those up as centralized services and as developers build code, services are set up, uh, you just chunk metrics at your statsd endpoint or at Graphite, and it's all free. You can measure all the things, and somebody else is is really in charge of dealing with those clusters and making sure they scale appropriately, et cetera. And that sets a mindset that works well in a lot of cases for building up more services and writing more code. If you need to measure something, emit a metric, and it just works. Uh, Flipping to a newer uh, Prometheus-based stack, uh, Prometheus doesn't scale in the same way that we might be used to for graphite. It's purposely self-contained. It purposely doesn't depend on a cluster of some sort. Um, Reasoning being, when you're in an emergency situation, the last thing that you want um, to have dependency cycles in or can't start because of an outage is your monitoring system. Um, And frankly, that model works really well. But then you have uh, teams trying to use a single Prometheus server or a pair of redundant Prometheus servers And folks will notice that they can overwhelm a Prometheus server uh, pretty quickly. I mean, what's a five or six million metrics a second between friends? Nothing, really. Nothing, really. And that turns that user perception sort of back around. And they come at the metrics folks and say, hey, Prometheus must suck. What do you mean I, I bowled it over with you know, umpteen bazillion metrics. Um I want all these dimensions on my latency histograms for my endpoint. What do you mean I can't do that or have to actually follow a set of best practices to get good data out of Prometheus. Because uh, Prometheus will give you good data, but there's lots of best practices so to help you take uh, get the most benefit out of. Where Graphite was basically just kinda, you know, chunk it in there and forget about it, and if you can do good math or bad math on it later, it's somebody else's problem, really. So that—that that is something I have experience with, where Prometheus has caused folks to actually think and be cognizant of their metrics. And the developers don't like that so much. They're not used to having to deal with that cognitive burden of how do I appropriately measure and appropriately apply dimensions um, without costing a bazillion dollars to run a Prometheus instance for a team? But from my side, I like each team running their own Prometheus server, divide and conquer, because if folks have a code bug or something happens, they take out their local Prometheus server and everybody else stays happy.
0: Yeah, I'm not trying to say that I, I dislike this model. I'm trying to caution that there is a bunch of things to think about before you suggest to management or you suggest to other teams that you're entertaining this. One of the things that we really want out of this kind of shift for Elk, if we actually do it, is there is very... Right now, we, we have a lot of things we put in place to, for example, restrict user query, because it is very difficult to teach people the ins and outs of Lucene query languages while they're also being a developer or a business intelligence person or customer support person. And it's relatively easy to overwhelm our ELK stack because we built it to be cost efficient, which means it doesn't have a whole lot of extra capacity in it, especially in terms of search. If we moved into a model where every team had a sized ELK stack that fit their needs and then we federated search across them, people would have a a much better sense of, Okay, well, I know that my logs are okay, and if the the global elk, ELK service is still down, da- is down, I am still able to see if I can do a release based on my part of the code because my stuff is still up. And then security and the other folks who rely on the the federated search across all the instances, they'll have more issue with any individual piece being down, but it also means that when something goes down, it doesn't take the whole stack down. Right now when things when everything goes down, we spend a long time recovering. It takes hours to bring things back up. There was a, a networking event a couple of weeks ago. It was a planned event, but things didn't go as smoothly as we, people would have hoped just because this is life and this is the world we live in. And it took two and a half, three hours, I think, to bring Elk back up to a reasonably healthy place. And while it was down, people were blind to stuff. And if we were in a a, a single-tenant smaller instance model, it would have been much, much faster to bring up individual pieces and say, okay, all the individual teams could sign off faster on their pieces saying, okay, we know that our stuff is back up. We can see the logs out of our services. Our pieces have recovered. Now we're just waiting on the sign-off from the other teams that rely on us that they're back up. So that would have been a much welcome change in that sense. Don't you love outages? <sighs> outages are going to get a, 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 a an episode pretty soon because... They're, they're kind of hairy, and they're kind of awful.
1: Yeah, how to have an outage. Look for your next, uh, uh, your favorite podcast
0: thing. I, I want to spend a little bit more time on why having some kind of auto-scaling, either cloud or on-prem scaling system, is critical to doing this kind of single-tenant stack. And a lot of that comes from the fact that, like, right now, it takes us a lot of planning and a lot of work to scale up the alt cluster. We're running on bare metal and so if you want another 100 hosts it takes time to find power and cooling and network and actual servers and rack them and stack them and do early failure analysis on the hardware and all that kind of it takes time it takes a bunch of planning and a bunch of time and you have to think about it bare power advance. supply
1: sw- swaps exactly
0: if you have memory a memory failure if you have a if you have a single the smaller single tenant instance scaling model First off, you're not bringing up many at once usually. You're bringing up a much smaller quantity. It's not like, oh, we're, we're adding 30% capacity and so we're bringing everything up. It's as teams individually grow, they get more services. And so the, the cluster or the, their, the sharding of their database grows as they grow rather than kind of pushing against a larger resource envelope that grows in larger chunks but then takes a lot more work to, to expand. When you have an auto-scaling environment again, you, you're able to let teams individually scale and grow and they know where the costs are coming from and they know why and how they're using the resources that they're getting and you're, you're freed from all the large jumps in hardware you have to do. It shifts it though into a model where you need to continuously monitor the capacity of whatever your scaling function is. If it's Mesos Aurora on bare metal, if it's GCP, if it's AWS, if it's Azure, or whatever you're using for your back end, you have to start watching that. And you, there's API limits, and there's costing limits, and there's all kinds of other pieces. And you have to test and validate the scaling mechanics now rather than test and validate, can you bring up more hardware?
1: It doesn't make things easier. It shifts the problem into different spaces. And there are some intrinsic advantages and disadvantages that come along with that. But I'm, I'm sitting here thinking if I give a team a Prometheus server in a cloud environment, whatever cloud that may be, how does that Prometheus server say, oh, well, my data partition's almost full. I should grow that before I fall over on the team. Or ingestion is pretty high. How do I grow a few more CPUs? Or uh, more memory to handle a higher query load? And at this point, I just say, hey, grab yourself a bigger instance.
0: I'm not sure that's an awesome user story. Well, Prometheus scales reasonably well from my reading with CPU. As, as you add CPU and as you add memory, it scales linearly, roughly, right? Roughly.
1: So, and really, a maxed out Prometheus box handling six or seven or eight million metrics ain't shabby. No. But as we're moving over into this distributed divide and conquer sort of methodology, we also have some of our historic baggage that still may be rather monolithic in nature. And, okay, we want to uh, monitor our historic baggage with the new stack so we get good data out of, out of the, the older stack. And that becomes a really interesting problem. Um, how do you break down the monolith so you can divide and conquer? Because uh, one Prometheus server may s- scale to impressive amounts, but it's not going to scale to handle ye old monolith that we're trying to move away from.
0: One of the ways I've seen teams handle this, and the way that we're intending to handle this initially at least, is to move, to, move the, the monolithic Elk stack into the cloud and move it into the same model that we're, we're intending other people to use, but set the resource limits to where the current monolithic stack is. And we're validating this this actually works. And thankfully, with cloud stuff, you actually can test very quickly. And once we validate that it works, and we actually can ingest on that, we're going to start shifting piecemeal, team by team, into the, new, the, the brave new world of having single-tenant stacks. And as we turn those up we'll be turning down the size of the the centralized cluster and ideally at the end of six months or a year we'll be able to shut down most of the monolithic elk stack and have lots of little elk stacks running that are less prone to failure um if but more only prone I had a to
1: monolithic prometheus stack i'm still being asked to
0: build that <laughs> yeah I don't, I don't think that exists my monolithic stack is called graphite this problem also expands to other places. I've seen people do a similar approach with with like Cassandra, saying, "Yeah, we're not building a gigantic Cassandra cluster. We are building little Cassandra clusters for teams that need them. And as you need them, we are going to support them and we're going to maintain them for you. But you're on the hook for the disk space and the CPU costs of them. And, and when in they the go cloud down, environment, they alert that's you.
1: really easy to set up infrastructures code. Uh, basic maintenance is really easy to script and modify so you can expand your uh, attached um, permanent storage, persistent storage, whatever you call it on whatever cloud provider you're on. Um, a lot of the basic stuff there
0: works pretty well, but it's there's more than basics. You just reminded me of my other major nightmare that's coming out of all of this, which is... Brendan has lots of nightmares, folks. How do you handle upgrades? How do you handle an upgrade when you have, say, fifty-five different Prometheus instances or teams or whatever, or fifty-five different Elk stacks or however it is? How do you say we're moving from this version to this version? How Prometheus, do you coordinate? That? Fortunately,
1: isn't uber sensitive to versioning and um, exposition formats of from its clients that it, from its targets that it usually scrapes. So I don't have a super critical problem where I have to upgrade the server end and the client end in lockstep um, to make upgrade progress, which makes the problem easier for me, but I know that's not true for all cases and all situations, which makes this problem really challenging.
0: Yeah, for Elk, because upgrades have been so difficult at our size in the past, we traditionally build a new cluster Dual ingest, and then shut the old cluster down, and that's how we do upgrades. That's how we upgrade graphite. I'm not sure how we're gonna do upgrades with smaller single tenant instances. And with a centralized based model, once you you know, push out the upgrades into,
1: say, your puppet system, those are rolled out across your entire fleet within you know fifteen thirty minutes, and everything moves in sort of lockstep together server endpoints, client endpoints, everything. And in this divide-and-conquer distributed model per each team, it's really very possible that a specific team might not choose to upgrade their Prometheus or their other service um, at your interval. They may choose intervals that works best for them, or they may just blatantly forget, I mean, it's a black box that sits over in the corner and just runs, right? Yeah. So, pushing out upgrades and how you get those in reasonable lockstep across a larger sort of microservice SOA um, environment becomes more of a social problem. And although I believe we just did an episode on using uh, technology to solve social problems, I'm not a big fan of solving social problems with technology. Those problems are significantly more complex and significantly harder to deal with. So distributed systems, divide and conquer. I think it's sort of important to sort of cover what I think are really good examples of of this methodology and things that sort of shine out to me as... How this can work and how this can work uh, really well, and you know, as I look over the notes I wrote for myself, I kind of realize that that you achieve success here by using a bit of both uh, of both models, a little bit of uh, centralized salted in with your distributed model, and some interesting and, and really uniquely powerful things happen. So. Back at the university, uh, we ran um, AFS, the Andrew File System, which, if you know it, you probably love it, or hate it, or you've never heard of it, but it was a networked file system that was 10 to 20 years, really, ahead of its time, and one of the beauties of that file system is that you could spawn off to the math department and say, if you want that extra space to do all of those high-performance computing uh, models and calculations, you need to pony up and buy your own set of AFS servers and handle your own storage. We'll be glad to help you and support you, but you've got to provide your own storage. So you could literally buy your own servers, get them racked and stacked, or turn them up in the cloud for the modern-day equivalent. And those servers would join the AFS cell and participate in that network and suddenly be available to anyone with an AFS client in that same AFS cell. And you had the the centralized AFS databases that mapped the world together for you, while the math department provided the cache and the storage and the spindles that supported their advanced storage needs that sort of outclassed, you know, what... What most folks are willing to, to purchase and support for for the casual user looking at something a little bit more modern services like aws's uh s3 uh google's uh google cloud storage buckets the whole concept of of rest accessible storage buckets in the sky i think are really powerful um Example of these kind of techniques where the problem of of scaling S3 can be divided across user, it can be divided across region, and obviously across each individual bucket. So you have multiple dimensions of how you can divide that problem and relocate storage and move things around depending on where the load is, where the users are. And because that problem divide so easily and in so many dimensions well quite clearly uh, those products really scale quite a bit I think it was uh, Amazon's first cloud service they announced and it's still one of their most popular services today if you don't know you're using it you're just lying to yourself you know you're using it um, so that's been an incredibly awesome example of some of these techniques and yet that sort of layered on top with a centralized uh, access API that's kind of always the same so you get a little bit of, of sort of the best of both worlds anyway that's that was where my thoughts were leading on how you want a distributed service to actually pan out in the end game
0: and I think that's the only real supportable model if you're able to move to a model where you don't have to provide any support whatsoever, you can go fully to the contract basis. But for most of us, the reality is we will be providing ongoing support, even at some, even if it's very low touch, we have to be involved with coordination, we have to be involved with upgrades, we have to be involved with other decision-making, especially around this, the the non-technology pieces of the problem or the social pieces of the problem. And, Having that centralized framework still in place allows for teams to make decisions. It allows for technologies to be adopted correctly and allows for a, a metered rollout of, of things in the environment. I think it's a, a very powerful way to look at the problem. And when you can layer on top
1: of each other those techniques and get some of the social stuff worked out, yeah, you're totally in the right ballpark. But
0: that's work. Those are not simple problems. Oh, none of this is easy. All of this that we've been talking about takes a lot of time and a lot of planning. And for many things, it shouldn't be done. You should look at it and go, well, that was a nice thought exercise, but we're not actually doing it because it doesn't work for various cost or scaling or people reasons. But if you're at a point where scaling has taken you to the limits of what you can do, this might be a way that you can continue building and continue scaling without overloading yourself. Don't do it because it's cool.
1: Do it because you have the technical reasons.
0: And I think that wraps it up, right? I think so. That wraps it up for episode 51 of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. Please do take the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory... It really is the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about the shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts in email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. Thanks.